Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey bringing you this week's talk from Boss 2017 with Paul Kenny entitled Turning Software into Money. Welcome to the Business of Software podcast where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Paul Kenny is a sales coach with experience working with software companies including Redgate and Stack Exchange. He has a huge amount of experience and insight to share on the process of selling your software. Over the last 25 years, he has helped to develop salespeople and sales managers working in media, technology and the professional services sector. Since his first talk in Boston in 2008, Paul has explored the many different approaches that you may take to developing a robust and sustainable sales effort. More recently, Paul has been running online workshops, coaching and training events for companies across the world. In this talk, Paul will tell you the important things to get right to set your company up well to turn your software into money. Happy listening. I'm going to start, because I'm British, I'm going to start with an apology for the rather crass, rather blunt, rather salesy title to my um, talk. Um, You should know the story behind it because... um, Mark rang me up. Mark does this thing with speakers. The speakers in the audience, so you, you, you talk to him for about 10 minutes about other stuff, and then you're in the program for business of software. I don't quite know how he does it. Um, and, uh, and, and he said, right, um, so what are you going to talk about this year? And I said, look, let me think about it. I was just heading out to China uh, for a, a job. And I said, let me think about it, Mark. Um, I'll think about it on the plane. And by the time I got back, it was called turning software um, into money. And I, I didn't know what to do with that, particularly, because it, sa- it does sound a little bit sales bullshit, really, doesn't it? Um, and, um, and then I thought, yeah, but do you know what? More or less everywhere I go, that's what people ultimately want to do. So it's not a great title, but I'm going to ask you to consider it um, my minimum, minimum viable title. Um, and I have a couple of updates to add as we, go through, um, as we go through the day. So for those of you who haven't met me before, come across me before, um, a little bit of background. Um, I, I do appreciate that it's a hugely egotistical thing to do, to put a picture of yourself in your own presentation. Um, and I wouldn't normally do it, but that young, callow youth uh, up there is um, me back in 2008, um, uh, right here at my first Business of Software um, conference. Um, and you know how it's funny, you know, we were talking about, oh, Seth was talking about the butterfly in the, in the, in the thing. I did have a thing. As I stood up for that conference in 2008, I had a, um, a little moment of panic because this whole market uh, was new to me. And I started thinking, as I, as I was walking down to take the stage, I was thinking, how the hell did I get here? Um, and I got here um, because when I left college, um, I took a, th- a job which I said I would do for about three months in um, advertising sales. Um, and um, I worked for a company that, uh, that, that published uh, technical magazines, things like PC Week, Atari User, um, uh, and uh, Datalink, uh, Computing Magazine, Network Magazine, Informatics, all of these, um, all of these things. And I was a spectacularly 
average salesperson um, for the three or four years that I was there. But I was very lucky because I worked with some amazing salespeople. It was a terrible market to work in. There were hundreds of publications that were exactly the same as you. If you tore the front page of computing, Computer Weekly, PC Week, PC Business World, all these things, if you tore the front page off, you could not tell the difference between them. And you were selling to a cynical audience of advertising buyers, all of whom have bought um, you know, for years and years and years. They've heard every line. And in amongst that, I managed to, um, to, to start. I, I realized that the only way I was going to survive um, was to um, watch those people who were really good uh, and to try and model it. And because of that, I, didn't, I, became, a bit, I became a good enough salesperson. Um, I managed to keep my job, I managed to hit my target more times than I didn't, and all of those sorts of things. I managed to get myself into a sales management role. But most of all, what I managed to do was to um, develop a passionate interest in why some people sell and some people don't, why some sales teams work and why some uh, don't. And you will all have experienced, if you've worked in different organizations, um, every type of sales. As, as customers, you'll have, re you'll have received calls from the truly brilliant, where you feel looked after, supported, educated, um, serviced, and you've also had the terrible experience of it as, um, as well. And I spent 20 odd years trying to figure out um, kind of what makes the, the difference. Now, because when I arrived here, I thought I was going to be speaking um, to tomorrow lunchtime. Um, and so, you'll excuse me, I, I put together a slightly misty-eyed, nostalgic presentation um, about Boss and some of the, uh, and some of the lessons I'd learned um, here by coming along um, every year. Um, I, and so, I, I've, too late to take them out, I guess. So, um, there'll be a little bit, of that, uh, little bit of that going on. At this 2008 um, business of software, there were some really cool people. And in the same way that Chris invented the selfie stick, um, I invented Pinterest um, all those years ago. Uh, this actually genuinely was a little slide I put together um, for uh, a, a group that I'm involved with. I was trying to tell them about this, this, uh, this, this market um, all, all, those years, uh, all those years ago. And you'll recognize a few faces. You've got Jason Fried and Joel Spolsky. Um, Steve Krug was uh, talking. Um, a very, very, very young and handsome Dama Shah um, in the, 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 the talk, uh, Jessica Livingstone. Um, Alex Anayan did a, a lightning talk. Um, and, um, and then uh, and then Seth. And, and to be honest, I, you know, if I hadn't met Seth yesterday, I wouldn't have known what happened to any of these people. Um, you know, like, but isn't it, what I think is great about this conference is that if you put that like, oh, and there were people like Tom Jennings um, on talking about um, selling your business and venture capital. There was uh, Noah Wasserman from Harvard Business School talking about do you want to be rich or do you want to be um, uh, king. It was Steve Johnson talking about product management. And the thing that struck me when I dug out this old picture again was, you know, if you put that same line up here this year, you'd still sell tickets, wouldn't you? You know, I mean, it, this is the kind of, the, 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 the quality, if you like, of, what, of what's here. But at the time, I was kind of there. For those, as I say, for those of you who don't know me, I was there to talk about 
sales. And the founder of the conference, Neil Davidson, he said, you'll be fine, Paul. He said, um, he said not a lot of people really you know, like salespeople, um, but uh, I, I'm sure they'll like you, uh, which is about <laughs> the least useful advice help you can, you can, um, you can, you can get. Um, and um, in the intervening years, um, I am the guy who stood up and ranted about sales. I've ranted that everybody is a salesperson, and if you think you're not, you're missing a massive trick. Um, I've ranted that there's no such thing as a company without a sales function. You may not have a sales department, but you have a sales function um, somewhere. It's just that it might come out via support or the product managers who go and see the major clients or, or whatever. So that sales is a part of it, is a part of that. Um, I have made a habit of picking up speakers who've made jokes about salespeople and having a go right back at them on behalf of my profession. I'm kind of like the Clint Eastwood uh, revenge uh, <laughs> model of sales. Um, and, um, and I've thoroughly enjoyed every, every uh, minute of it. So my aim today was really to... Uh, I wanted, to, I wanted not to rant this year. I wanted to, uh, to, to have a bit more of a fireside um, chat because uh, I think it's important um, when you think about sales to think about it in a particular um, way. I think that sales is one of those things that from Jason's talk yesterday is one of those things that everybody thinks they know um, a bit about. And... Um, if I'm honest, unless you've done some of it, unless you've been in the firing end, there are things you'll know, you, you, you may not get about it. Um, and very often, people um, come to me with a, this is the way I, I earn my living, is people come to me with a, uh, a sales problem, a sales situation. And so my um, first iteration of uh, my title for the course, um, it's no longer turning software into money, although there will be a bit of that. Um, it's um, what we think about when we think about sales performance. Um, and uh, when people come to me, they usually come with some sort of problem. They usually, it's, and sometimes the, the broken that they're talking about is, um, is really serious. Um, it can be that uh, we hired three salespeople, um, we've invested in their education, we've, uh, we've uh, uh, remunerated them really, really well, um, we have um, let them right inside the product um, so that they can articulate it to the problem, and, um, and they've all just resigned. You know, or it can be that I've just put together a big chunk of my VC money um, into somebody who has an amazing sales CV, and it turns out that they're an idiot. Um, or it may be that I, um, I'm starting to work out that they're not up to the sales job that we need doing. You know, they may have been great in one role, but they're not up. The market's changed, the type of interaction that we have to have with our customers has changed, and they're not up to it anymore. But it's not always that serious. Sometimes it's just that feeling that you may get. And, and I have to say, more often, it is the, this case, it's that feeling that you get that somehow we're just missing a trick. Somehow we are not 
fulfilling our sales potential as a business. Um, perhaps the markets, you know, we're doing really well, the market's growing, but you can't help feeling that um, we're not converting enough of the demos that we do or the, um, the conversations that we have are not turning into business fast enough. And so we're doing okay, but it's just not quite, um, just not quite um, good enough. So what I'd like to do in the time that we've got is I would like to just share with you my approach. Um, uh, so when someone sits down with us, and I say my approach, I, I'm very fortunate to work with a network of some very talented um, sales trainers, um, and uh, we, it's a shared approach. We, we, we've worked this out um, over time. Um, and there's a few rules, a few guidelines. And as I say, I promise not to rant this year. I'm just going to chat to, to share some um, thoughts um, with you. And um, the first of those is that if you ever have the feeling that your sales are a, a bit broken or just not quite working or not quite um, uh, functioning, the first and most important rule is to be really aware of sales experts, okay? Now, I do appreciate the monumental irony of me saying that to you, okay? Uh, it is, um, and I, I want to, uh, I want to give you uh, a, a reason for this. It's because when you sit and think about sales, and you know, if you're a founder, or if you're a board member in a business, you don't just think about sales, you think about everything else. And it's hard to keep an eye on sales because you can see what's going into Salesforce or whatever CRM you're using. Um, but you can't always get a real feel for the quality of conversations, for the level of service. And do you remember yesterday when Seth talked about the package? And he said it's not about the packaging, a nice box of you know, sci-fi game software. Packaging is your support. Packaging is your sales. Packaging is the experience people have when they um, buy from you. And it can be really hard to monitor um, anything other than just the raw data. You know, you can see that we called somebody, you can see that we converted them, but you can't see, you can't get a sense of how somebody might be, um, might be feeling. Um, and if things aren't right, there's a huge temptation to look for the big, shiny, new sales thing to fix it. So this is how a call usually goes. If somebody goes, he goes, Paul, we met at such and such conference or such and such event, and you're the sales guy, and I really want to talk to you because I think it's time that we moved to spin selling. And I say, oh, right, okay, if that's what you want to do. Um, or they'll say, and there's a million different models. Consult we, need a, we need to move to consultancy selling. Or we need to, um, somebody came up to me one day, and they said, um, I need to move to a mindset conditioning sales model. And I said, good luck with that, because I had no idea, not a clue, um, what mindset conditioning sales model um, uh, is. And I'm not sure actually I want to. Um, but it's, you know, what happens is people come out with this, or they want to make a fundamental change to their sales department. And they say things like, Paul, I've decided that um, we're going to get rid of commission for our salespeople. Um, in fact, I had a, uh, I'll talk more about commission in just a, um, in just a, a, a little while. 
So um, you get, these, you get these, this mindset that wants to, to shift things, and, and it kind of worries me. And it worries me for all sorts of reasons, because um, it worries me where the idea comes from. And I, I'm going to move away from sales, if I might, just for a second, for, for a minute or two, um, and tell you about an experience we had, because it sort of pertains to um, some of the stuff that Chris said and some of the stuff that Scott said in, in his presentation about, um, about creativity. Some years ago, largely based and inspired entirely by the experiences I'd had at this conference. A client came up to me um, and said, we really need to think about innovation in our business. Um, we're not talking about you know, dis huge disruptive innovation. They're a, they're a, a conferencing business. Um, they're a global business. Um, they're very successful. Um, they're, they're very mature. Um, business, and they said, you know, it's more the kind of day-to-day -day keeping people sharp, looking for better, fresher ways of doing things. And so I said, brilliant, okay, we can come up with something with that, and we got the team together, and we went to work on it. And purely, purely um, influenced by the people I've met here, um, we came up with this great idea. I say it was great. They thought it was great. They, they bought it, so it must have been great. Um, and, uh, and we came up with this idea where we said, what would help people to learn about innovation? We wanted to teach them some design thinking, if you like. And one of the things we did was we said, we came up with this idea of a hackathon, but not for people who actually know how to build products. Um, what we did was we said, we will teach design thinking and thinking about your customer and looking to add value by setting people a challenge. And what we did, we got everybody in a room. Um, we said, we gave them a customer segment that they had to research and think about. And then we said, you've got eight hours or seven hours to build an app that, they, that will serve your customer in some way. Now, we didn't want the real app. We, what we wanted was a, a, a dynamic mock-up. And we, um, we uh, Pelly kindly donated um, uh, access to Balsamic um, because he does that sort of stuff for education. And um, we, we, got, uh, we hired some UX guys to sit with them so they didn't get lost in the technology. And we got them thinking about this stuff. And we trained them in some brainstorming techniques. And we got them building. So like Chris said yesterday with the, the maker days they have, and like Scott said today, you've got to do something to get, to get good at this. And um, so we did it. And we did it in all sorts of countries. This is the team in Sao Paulo um, who who were working, 60 people in Sao Paulo did it, London, Manchester, Amsterdam, Paris, we did it all over the place. And about halfway through the, um, halfway through the, 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 the sessions, a guy walked up to me, it's right at the end of one of the days, and everybody had been like this, they were laughing, they had a great time, they all produced amazing um, ideas, one or two of which actually made it into their, um, into their um, uh, uh, product offering. And, um, and he said, well, this is all very well, Paul, but of course you've heard that brainstorming doesn't work anymore. And I said, what do you mean brainstorming doesn't work? He says, well, I've read a book now, and it's been proven that brainstorming doesn't work. And, um, and um, so I immediately sort of hit the internet, and I've run into articles um, like this, you know, why brainstorming doesn't work and what to do instead. And I thought, this is really interesting. And I read it down. And there was a, um, a fairly serious academic from um, Kellogg um, uh, University there uh, who said, brainstorming doesn't work. And here's the proof. And I thought, oh my goodness, brainstorming doesn't work. What have I been doing? I've been, like, you know, I've been doing the, like the proverbial bumblebee. You know, nobody told me um, that I couldn't fly. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then it got even worse. Harvard Business Review said, brainstorming doesn't work. 
And I thought, oh no, because I'm halfway through this great contract, which is very, very profitable um, for us. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so, so, and then when I read into it, you know, actually, they were well thought out. If you read behind the, the main articles, the memes, there was some very well thought out research and some good arguments. And what they were really saying was that brainstorming under certain circumstances is no more productive um, than other means of, um, of uh, coming up with ideas. And then when you dig into it, you realize that when you, you can't say that brainstorming doesn't work because there's no definition of what brainstorming is. If you talk about dragging people from their work when they're busy into a soulless empty room um, and having a loud person with a flip chart shouting at them to come up with ideas, <laughs> then no shit, Sherlock. Of course it doesn't work. You know, um, if, if you're talking about um, making, creating a problem and letting everybody go away and sleep on it and then bringing people back um, and visualizing it and having people build stuff, you know, is that still brainstorming or is it something, something else? So do you see what I mean? The context is lost um, uh, uh, in it. And, um, and, and then what does work mean? Brainstorming doesn't work. Well, the brainstorming technique I think they were talking about was the Osborne Parnes method, which was developed by copywriters in New York in, in the um, Madison Avenue in the 1920s. And that was all about copywriting, so for creating headlines and things like that. Well, I came from an advertising background, and I saw people do that all the time, not only in adverts, but also headlines for magazines. People would make 20, 30, 40 headlines without critique, and then choose one or two, and then go to work on them. Tell those people it doesn't work. It depends what you mean by work. And this is the problem we have with sales. There's just too much generic model, too many generic um, models. So here's, a, here's another one that I found really confusing a few uh, years ago. Just somebody came up to me and said, well, of course, we need to stop doing commissions for our salespeople. And I thought, OK. You know? And then when I went a little further down, the, so I thought I better understand the theory. Better. And, Somebody had read a, um, a, a book by friend of boss, Dan, Dan Pink, and they decided that, um, that uh, on the basis of that, um, that commissions uh, don't work. And quite a few companies um, did. And then a little later on, um, in Inc. magazine, um, we had a, a slightly different. So hang on, do they work or do they not? Now, of course, it depends hugely on the salesperson. It depends hugely on the context that you're doing it. Now, I don't know whether Jason's in the room or not, but I'm going to pick him up. I'm going to do a little rant, if that's OK. I'm going to pick him up on the Ben Horowitz. Hey, I'm going to pick him up on the Ben Horowitz uh, uh, comment that the difference between the reason we pay salespeople is because, unlike developers, they don't go home and um, write code. Well, if you um, think that salespeople don't go home and rewrite decks, um, rethink negotiation points, um, ponder on their strategy, wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, um, uh, sweating on um, a response to a, a, a client um, that they don't take the, the uh, budget home to work on because they need quiet um, to do it. Uh, if they don't talk endlessly about what they're doing in the pub um, to try and find a way. If you think that, then you haven't spent much time with salespeople. Because, you know, the truth is, there are the, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you to the two salespeople in the room. <laughs> but hey! <laughs> so, 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 uh, um, so we've just got to be wary of these general rules. Um, because 
they might serve us in kind of educating us and helping chunk up our sort of daily, weekly learning from the internet, but they can be very, very unhelpful if we start to treat them as real. And we start to treat them as real when we're under pressure um, to, to do something um, about it. So I've always said that, you know, it's your business, your context is unique, um, you should listen to experts. Dan Pink's book, Drive, is an amazing book, and there's a heck, to, a heck of a lot to, <clears throat> to learn from it. Um, but you have to think for yourself. Now, I, I, I don't want to sound patronizing saying this to an audience of entrepreneurs, because you do all the time. Perhaps what I should say is you've got to think for yourself about sales in the same way that you think about product management, in the same way you think about development, in the same way you think about your marketing, which is um, in a curious, innovative, um, challenging um, way, and not be afraid to do things differently. If everybody else in your market is paying commission but it doesn't work in your business, don't pay commission. Do something else. Find a better way to remunerate people. Um, if everybody else is on the no commission rule but you think it would inspire your entrepreneurial sales team to really, really push the boundaries, pay commission. So how do you start to make these decisions? Well, what I'm going to take you through is a kind of thought process, if, if you don't mind. And it's about how we approach, what we do when somebody says, help, my sales team needs help. Um, and, um, and it's really just questions. And I'm deeply aware that when you try and reduce these things into um, a 45-minute, 50-minute presentation, it can sound oversimplified, um, and I don't want it to be. So my new title for the course, um, because I'm pretty agile about these things, is some deceptively simple questions to ask about your sales performance. And they're deceptively simple um, because it's not about the question. It's about how deep you're prepared to dive um, once you start asking these questions. And especially if you are not directly involved in the, so you're managing somebody who manages your sales, um, or you're managing somebody in the channel, perhaps, who you've outsourced your um, sales, um, or you, um, you just kind of have to rely on a sales team somewhere else, or you have remote salespeople, um, then these questions can be very, very helpful. And they've just been refined over the 20 years, really, to kind of get a sense of where we're going. So the first question is, and I said they were deceptively simple, is what kind of sales team do we want or need to be? Because you know all that stuff I was saying about commission, you know all that stuff I was saying about, um, uh, about sales performance, it depends what, you, you can't manage the sales performance unless you have a very well-defined sense of what it means to sell. The word selling is so general, it is practically meaningless. So you might have over here, and I'm deliberately not going to put words up on the slide to describe it. I'll, I'll say a few. But if you do this exercise, if you, can, you can do it quickly with me as we go through, because you'll start to have ideas. It's a bit like, as I throw these out, it'll be like the bunch of keys from Scott, you know, that, uh, that starts, starts the thinking. But if you take this away and, and think about it, um, I, it's very important that it's your word. So the first thing I say is, what kind of sales, sales team do you want to be? Or, or what job do you need your salespeople to do? 
stole that from someone at Boss as well. Um, and uh, and um, people often say, well, give me some examples. I say, no, you tell me what you want them to, to, to do. And it can be a bit difficult. But you know, at one end of the spectrum over here, you might have an entirely self-serve automated sales system. And that's fine. Or you might have an automated sales system, but actually people need a little bit of help to navigate it and work out what's best for them. Or you might have something where um, you have a great inbound service, and actually what you want to do is make people feel welcome and engaged and part of the, the family. Or you might have um, a, a sales team where actually all their job is to do is to generate is to is to generate interest. You know, you might need you might have a super technical product, but actually what you might need is somebody to um, to call out and and make the appointments for your engineers or your product managers or whatever to go and talk to the client. Or you might need somebody who um, who can not only make that call, but also do an initial assessment of the customer's needs and bring it back to the team to see if we can help. Or you might need somebody who can do all of those things together, a sales engineer sort of um, person. Or you might need a classic enterprise salesperson who goes out into the market um, and makes leads happen. So you might not be well known. Let's say you're a fintech company, you're not well known, there's only 30 banks that you can sell to, and you might need somebody who has got 20 years of banking experience, who, can, who knows how, to, how the banks work, who knows where the decisions are made, who can get inside, who can build relationships, who does play golf, who do, you know, all of those, all of those things, who can make it happen from nothing. Now, how can you say, how can you make a decision about whether commission works, or what type of training you're going to do with people, or what incentive you'll put in place, or what kind of environment you're going to get people to work in, if you don't know what type of sales organization you are. And the reason I'm not putting them up on the slide is when you put stuff up on the slide, people go, oh, there's a model. I can use that. Um, and it's, the most important bit of this is defining that job yourself. So spend some time with your sales managers, spend some time with your customers particularly, talking about what they need um, from, uh, from us. Okay, next up, next big question is, what are your performance markers? Now I use this term, performance markers, very, very specifically. Because the big mistake that people make in sales is they talk about the result. What results do you need? What target do you need to, to reach? What's the number, if you like? Um, and they get very obsessed. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, in every business I've been involved in, I've been very concerned about the, the number um, of them, particularly the, you know, the, my first training company, which was absolutely bootstrapped, and, you know, and it was our money we were spending, and all of those sorts of things. I've been very bothered about the number. But there's a difference, a fundamental difference, between a good result and a good performance, if that makes sense to everybody. It's a fundamental difference. Everybody who's played sport, played a game of tennis or a game of golf, you know, there are times when you've won, but the performance was shocking. You know, you know, you know that's when you walk back in, you go, got away with that one. You know, the same is true of the meetings we run and all, all the, the, the rest of it. And um, there are times when no matter how 
um, brilliantly you've performed, you don't quite get the result because that's the nature of entrepreneurism, right? You know, you have to go out and, and, um, and, and test it. So I think it's really important to start to think seriously about what type of sales performance you want from whoever is um, uh, interacting with your customer digitally, on the phone, face-to-face, on -face, however they're doing, however they're, um, they're, they're doing it. So, and it's important because, and I'll do a little test here to see if I've left anyone awake um, in the audience. If you ask this question, the boiling frog got mentioned three times yesterday, so I figured I ought to get it into my presentation too. And, um, and uh, if, you ask, if you ask somebody, say, right, how do you make your number? How are you going to make your number? All I'm bothered about is your number. Make your number. What sort of mind, what sort of thought pattern does that send off? set off in someone's head. So it's results, and then they start to think, oh my god, the number's really important. If I don't get the number, I'm going to get fired, or I'm going to be in trouble, or somebody's going to get a bigger number than me, they're going to get a better car than me, or more money. So he starts that sort of thing, all of which is often deeply distracting, to, because it becomes about me and not about the customer. Then when somebody's really stuck for their number, this is the reason why sometimes it's a good idea not to have a monthly, that some companies I know don't have a monthly target. They remunerate in, in other ways. If you've got people who um, are feeling under pressure for their number, then it's not that people become dishonest. It's that they start to just gradually stretch the, their understanding of what acceptable behavior is. So. Um, something that's not particularly, it's, it's quite common and um, makes me not very popular with salespeople when I uncover it, but there's a, the issue of carpet bagging. You know what that is? That's carpet bagging is the, um, okay, I'm way ahead of my number for this month, so everything's good, yay. But, oh my God, my numbers for, ne for next month look terrible. Boo. So what am I going to do when somebody calls in and it's a really peachy lead and whatever, and I can sell to them this Friday, or I can put them off till next week, which happens to be in next month's commission system. Now, is it dishonest just to delay it a little bit? So you end up with this whole level of gamification going on, which is in that sort of gray area. And it might also affect the things that people say. It might affect the deals that people do. So you take somebody who um, who may pay a full price and you start to throw extras in that cost you um, or you start to discount or you start to do those sorts of things to get it in because I've got to make my number. Or it may make you ring somebody um, that, you know, you might ring somebody one time and they're great to hear from you, ring them another and they're like, hi. Ring them the next time, they're like, yeah, we said we're thinking about it. Ring them the next time, you're starting to piss me off now. You know, and you get into that sort of thing, and people start to care less about the threshold if they've got the number. Does that make sense to everybody? And although making your number is important, particularly if you're VC-backed and you've got someone from the VC on your board and it's the first question they always ask you, um, but, but if we obsess about it to the detriment of everything else, then we've got a problem. So it's a much better question to ask is, what kind of sales performance do you want to deliver? 
And this starts a train of thought. Because when you think about a sales performance, you start to think about, well, actually, if our values, going back to the talks from yesterday, are about delighting our customer, then I want to make my number, but I want to do it in a certain way. And I want a high CSAT um, uh, rating um, or, or NPR, um, uh, NPR score for, for the, um, uh, for the, uh, from the client. Or I want to grow the client. Um, and I want them to, or I want them to repeat more. Or a great performance might be that, do you know what? On average, it's been taking us three months to, um, to close business down um, and to decide whether someone's going to buy or not. And it might be better if we can get people to do it in two months. We might be able to serve them better or come up with better decision-making tools for them to help them do it um, faster. Or a great performance might also be non-sales things. A great performance, if you set performance markers for the year, say, this really surprised one of my clients. I asked them for performance markers. They gave me the numbers from the Salesforce um, forecast and said, that's fine. That's the number. Now tell me what a great performance looks like. And we really struggled through that. And I said, OK, well, that's the sale. You want to have um, high CSAT ratings. You want to have um, customer retention. You want to have people booking for longer because they feel more comfortable. Um, you know, we went through all of, all of those. I said, what other markers? And they said, well, that's it. That's it. That's, we're really happy with that. So what about the salespeople? We might consider one of our performance markers in a sales suit, how many of our salespeople choose to work with us next year? Or they just choose to chase the next job? Um, or we might actually want in our performance markers how happy people are in their sales role. Because it can be an absolutely, um, it can be a really tough job. It can be a, a depleting um, job. Um, or you might set performance markers um, about, um, about product innovation. Because bizarrely, salespeople can be quite useful at providing feedback um, to the market. They, admittedly, they provide it in the form of, the client wants these three features and they want it in the next version, um, but, uh, you know, which they do. Um, but it doesn't mean to say, you know, you maybe can't, you can't do it, and you might have to deal with managing the salesperson, but actually the fact that they're bringing you customer feedback um, or, or, or driving the, uh, is, is valuable. So um, we, we have to think really carefully about the type of performance that we want to deliver the markers. And I call them markers because you, will, you can put a number by most of these things. You can put a number about staff turnover. You can, you can measure customer satisfaction ratings. You can measure reten retention and all of those sorts of things. So before you start making decisions about who to hire and how many and what you're going to pay them and all of those things, think about what type of sales team you want and think about what a great sales performance really, really looks like. Bring the same rigor that you would bring to your product development. Bring the same rigor that you would bring to your financial management, because it really, it really matters. The next question we ask is, OK, in an ideal world, you would say, this is the type of team we want to be, and we train everybody up, and off you go, and everything's fine. But a load of stuff gets in the way. So we have to, I always say, well, what, my two questions are, you know, what's going to drive you there, and what's going to get in the way? Now. I always end up, again, I'm not putting specifics on here because I want you to think about, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, it's really important that this is generated from within your business. 
Um, uh, but if you want some headings to get you started, you should think about the market, the product and package, um, and by package I mean in exactly the, the context that Seth um, talked about it yesterday. Um, uh, our competitors, capabilities, commitment is about motivation levels, um, and, um, and our processes, because often our processes get in the way. Now, we do not have nearly enough time to go into uh, lots of examples for all of these, but I'm guessing you know what I mean. And um, once you start to identify the barriers, there's a few things you should do. Number one is don't accept any cliches. If you start, if you get your whiteboard out or you create a Trello board to do this or something like that, do not accept cliches. Once you start asking these questions, do not let people put on the driver's side, we have a super committed sales team. Because what does that mean? It means nothing, okay? What you might say is that our sales team have now been with us, the majority of them have now been with us for two years. Um, and given that it takes a year to learn the product and get your head around it and six months to learn the market, they're now hitting the right, the right phase, if you like. Um, that's specific. So, um, so don't let people put words like communication, motivation, clear strategy, all of those things. You know, all the things that you play in a game of bullshit bingo. Um, you've, got to, you've got to ban those um, from, the, um, from the conversation. Um, so embrace contradictions. Because some things that you might put in there, you might say as a driver, um, uh, we're really great at understanding customers' needs because we spend a lot of time pre-sale with them, really understanding them. And then you might have it as an inhibitor. We spend a lot of time with customers pre-sale, understanding their needs. And they can both be, they can be driver and inhibitor because one might be we really understand our customer. The other might be we simply can't, we don't have enough bandwidth to do this uh, properly. And you've got to describe it. So if you put contradictions down, um, you will find that there are, uh, that it will prompt further conversation. And that really, um, really helps. And once you've got a big list of these, we then see what we can do about it. And the next question, therefore, is what are your focus issues? What are we going to zero in on? Or you might put it another way, what are your big levers in sales? And big levers are defined by those things which will have a big impact on our business and those things over which we have a lot of influence. When you do this exercise, and you, I hope you do, I hope you give it a go, um, what you'll find is that you know, there will be some things that you can do nothing about. If you, let's go back to the FinTech example um, uh, earlier, I've got one client in that, that market one piece of legislation affects about a third of their sales. It means they can't go ahead with sales until they fix some stuff within, their, um, within their, their, their product. And it's just a piece of, you know, they can't lobby government to change their minds. It would be um, pointless. Um, they can sit and moan about it, but there's, there's nothing much they could do about it. So they might be able to, you know, decide how they respond and plan accordingly. But from a sales point of view, it's not a huge, it's not a huge thing. So what you have to do is you have to always look for, if you're looking for progression, quick progression, is look for the things you can influence and the things that will have a huge impact. Um, on the business. So I was with a client just the other day, a client in the education um, space, and they're currently being 
massively outspent by a new player who's got a very big VC um, behind them who is throwing money um, through the, the sales channel. They sell through um, a, a, a channel and, um, and they're, they're offering more incentives, more rewards, you know, all of these um, sorts of things and everybody's panicking um, a, a little bit. Um, and their sales director did something really brilliant. He sat everybody down and because they all came back looking for more you know, revenue that they could push back into the channel to reward people. And he said, I'm not putting any more revenue into that channel until I am fully sure that people really understand what they're buying. By which I mean, I want you to talk to these people and I want you to sit down and I want you to show them what our 10 years in the business buys them as opposed to the free iPhone 7 that they're being offered over here. And given that a lot of the buyers in that market are quite young, quite inexperienced, they're buying for other people, um, actually, why wouldn't you go for a free iPhone 7 or 8 or, or, or whatever? But actually, if somebody comes in and shakes that view up a little bit, it makes a difference. And what he, what he managed to do was just by changing the presentations that they were taking out, um, and forcing people to do a comparison and say, look, fine, if you want to go down that channel, that's absolutely fine, but consider what you're losing. Don't compare apples with pears. Look at what you're, you're, you're losing. And the small change, just in the words that people were using, has a huge effect on the overall sales. That's what we mean by, um, by, by focus issues. And then once you've worked out your focus issues, then you've got to make like a little kid and go, well, why? Why is it there? Now, this, I have to say, is um, not one of mine. Um, this is a, um, a standard stock image child because my kids, um, frankly, when they say why, it's like, why can't I have a new car? Why, you know, so they, uh, why can't I have more money? You know, so, um, so it doesn't, doesn't resonate as well with the, with the audience. Um, so, or with their father, it has to be said. And, um, and, uh, we've got to dig into it because every focus issue that you get that comes out, if you ask the question, will then beg more questions because you'll soon, if you do this exercise, you'll soon see it's like spinning plates. I know that's a dreadful old cliche for running a, 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 a being a founder of a, a a software company, but it really genuinely is like, like spinning plates because there's lots of stuff. So let me show you. Um, we started asking the question on just one focus issue for a client. Um, and I apologize for n not being able to share more with you about the clients, but uh, pretty much everybody I work with, I have a, a very scary NDA on. So, um, but I can give you hints of stuff, if you like, to, to start you. Um, uh, this client, had what they, 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 one of their performance markers is, is yield. Um, the degree to which, how close people are to paying what's on their price rate card, if you like. And they are um, a business who's... Um, whose business model is based on um, uh, recruitment. Um, so they sell um, links and advertising. And it's not Stack Exchange, by the way, in case anybody's going, ha ha, I know you know Jeff. Um, it's not them. Um, it's, uh, it, 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 but one of the problems they, they said was our, one of our focus issues is that actually over four years, our profitability per client has gone is going down because because they're not paying any more, and in fact they started to it started to go down. Now that's a huge focus issue. If you can fix that in sales performance terms, you can fix a lot of you, you, it helps with a lot of other stuff. 
So I said, well, okay, well, that's a problem. And the, the reason I picked this one is because the call came in to us that, Paul, we want a negotiation course. And I went to see them, and the negotiation, actually, they could negotiate. They knew how to negotiate. They'd been on a negotiation course. What had happened was they'd been on a negotiation course. The yield that they were getting per client deal was still really low, so they just assumed that the negotiation course was rubbish, and then they get somebody else to do a negotiation uh, course. Um, you know, that's how people in my business make money. And, um, and uh, he... So we said, we've got to dig a little deeper here. If this is your focus issue, you've got to just keep asking why until you get a sense of it, and you should map it out. And so in this case, what we said was that they had a declining market share. And it was, it was not because they're doing anything bad, but because loads of other people have come into their, their market. So the customers simply have more, 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 more choice. Um, but they'd also lost some staff. And so some of the staff that, were, that would naturally have had the experience to defend the value of a deal, the newer guys didn't. And that low level of sales experience meant that all a client had to do, and we've all done it to salespeople, we've all just gone, um, that's a good deal, but these guys, their software does exactly the same as this, and it's half the price per month, and so therefore we're going to go with this one. You know, and they didn't have the experience to push back um, on that. Um, and the clients that they did have were starting to get wind that other people were getting deals um, and packages and all of these things. So they started to make um, demands. Um, put that with a very, very, very complex system, and um, people caved in. Pricing system, people caved in. Now, you can see automatically from this that solving sales problems, even this is, just, this is just one focus issue out of about five or six for this client at the time, solving these problems is never easy. But if you take the time to dig and dig and dig, and if you do it, I promise you, there'll be a couple of things you won't like. Sometimes you'll dig, and in one of those bubbles will be a person's name because they're struggling with, uh, the, or they're, they're an impediment to going, going on. Some of those things will be processes that you put in place. Some of those things, um, you, you'll look at them and you'll go, we can deal with that, but my God, it's going to take some difficult decisions with our staff. Okay, you won't like all of it, but until you get that picture, if we're, if we're talking in terms of... Um, uh, of uh, the bunch of keys, going back to Scott's um, uh, presentation um, earlier. This really is the whole bunch. You know, this is all the keys to all the doors of your house and your car and your summer house and your boat. It's everything, okay? And um, you've got to, only when you've got a picture this detailed about your sales performance, are you in a position to start saying, what might we do? And the, oh, sorry. My experience. Uh, uh, the final question we always ask is, how might we fix this? And this is really, really important, but notice the wording. It's not what can we do, because for some reason, when it comes to sales performance management, people are always in a massive hurry. And therefore, they always are looking for the quick thing. And that's why every two years, somebody comes out with a new sales system you know, that's completely unique you know, um, and completely brilliant and will transform your sales. And it's only going to take you a year to learn it and about $50,000. And um, when you do, it'll all be fine. 
until we, need, until we bring out the next new sales um, system. So don't go for the obvious answers, just the obvious answers. Um, I would push you to do what our speakers yesterday to say, well, why don't we try something a little bit different? I would encourage you to brainstorm this. But as we know, brainstorms don't work. <laughs> and again, I don't want to put this. I'll give you a couple of, um, of quick examples going back to our earlier um, exercise. You see how the client's solution was, was to train people in negotiation skills. But actually, when you look at this, and this is a simplified version of the real um, thing, then you start to realize, well, actually, it's not about training. Or some training might be useful, might be useful for our experienced salespeople, but there might be quicker ways to deal with this. How might we deal with low levels of experience in our sales team? Maybe we move someone over from one of the other sales teams who's got the experience. Maybe I go and sit amongst them for a, a few weeks to, to set a standard for pushing um, back. Maybe we change the way we hire uh, people. So you start to get things that you might um, try. Um, if you've got caving in, people just collapsing um, in, the, uh, in negotiations, I'll tell you what one of my clients did, because we played the game, how might we solve this? One of the things he worked out was that people were giving away money in deals because they didn't really equate your money <laughs> with their money. So actually, sure, you can have $100 off this monthly thing. Of course you can. They go, hang on, that's $1,200 a year. Even, you know, even with my basic maths, I can work that out. And, um, and, and then, so $1,200, OK. So what he did was, I thought, really quite clever. He gamified it in a really nice, fun way. He could have ranted at them. He could have sent them on another negotiation course. Instead, what he did was he printed off a load of monopoly money that was distinct monopoly money, um, designed with a company logo and all this sort of thing. And he gave everybody 10,000 pounds worth of uh, Monopoly money. And he said, every time you discount on a deal, okay, you have to give me the difference back from the, the deals. And these were kind of relatively low value, high, to, uh, high churn deals that we were doing at the classified end of, their, of their, their market. And within a week, the salespeople had got it. Because if they did a deal, chasing their number, um, they had to walk, it was almost like a walk of shame with their dollars to give them, to the, the, with their pounds to give them to the guy. And the person who had the most money um, left at the end got a really, really nice treat. They were, they were sent out for a really nice dinner and all of those sorts of things. They only did it once, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't you know, built into the DNA of the business. They just did it because it was, the, it was a fun way to fix it. So it can be little things or it can be huge things. It can be processed things. They simplified the rate card. And it's much easier to defend a rate card if you know where you are on it. Do you see what I, you see what I mean? So, um, oops, I've done it again. That's why salespeople are difficult to manage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so play the what might we do to, to fix it. I'm not sure there's a whole book in this, but this has been very, very useful for dealing with the widest range of sales, um, sales um, problems. The people who create the best performance are the ones who think most deeply about it. And with that in mind, um, I will make the same offer to you today that I've made in the, in the, the past. 
is if you want to talk through your sales performance with me, if you want to fix a bit of time to talk it through, I happily will do. And that's without a meter running or a charge going, because I learn as much from these conversations as always, and I will always anonymize them if, if, if we use any of those um, learnings. But the first step is sit, think really seriously um, about this stuff. The person who thinks most deeply is the one that's going to drive the highest level of performance. Thank you very much, guys. All right, thank you. Okay. Should we play We're, golf later? Yeah, we are running. Um, some questions? If there's any questions, we've got three or four minutes. Sorry, I went on a bit. I did I rant too much? Anyone got a hand that they want to put up? I can't see. Here, please. Hi. Thanks, Paul, for the presentation. So, a lot has been said about values in, yeah. in, in, the, in corporate culture. Uh, does it extend to sales team, or is it something different how sales team is? Yeah. Um, there's, there's an easy answer to that, which is yes, of course it does. Um, but I think there's a real danger when employers don't have an understanding of sales that they recruit and treat their salespeople like their stereotype um, because they don't, they, they, they don't know it. And I have seen enough examples of people who um, treat their developers one way and treat their salespeople another way. Not out of malice or anything like that. It's just out of, they, they think they want different things and, you know, um, and therefore you're creating a schism in the, in the, the, the values. Um, most salespeople actually are not hugely motivated by their commission as a, as a money, for instance. They're motivated by what that means to them. They're motivated if they're very young, if it, it will get them a flat or an apartment. Um, they're motivated a bit older about keeping up with the other guys and showing where they are. They're motivated by um, just sometimes it's personal. I want to book this, de this deal with people. If they understand the values of the business and are treated from the word go along with everybody else, then over time, and you reinforce that, um, going back to the, um, to the, 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 the presentation uh, before lunch about performance management, um, if you reinforce those behaviors, there's no reason why they will behave any differently from anyone else. So yes, build it in from the word go. It's really, really important. Thanks. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you. For arms in the middle. Hi. Hey. Um, yeah, thanks for the talk. That's great. Um, so I don't have an in-house sales agency. Sorry, I don't have an in-house sales team. I use an agency. Yeah. Um, are you able to talk to sort of like how your framework might, is, I mean, is it applicable to, to that yeah. sort of scenario? Yeah, it's applicable um, to an agency. And in fact, in some ways, it's even more critical if you've got an agency because um, there are very different uh, sales channel models. Um, and some sales channels, it's, you know, your product goes out to 10,000 people around the globe and it just goes on their list and if somebody asks them for it, they're, they're there. So that's all about having the broadest uh, 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 approach. Um, and others do it more selectively. They will hire people specifically to sell into a market and to sell certain products and to be evangelists for those products. Um, I would say that it's particularly important. You can do exactly the same thing um, with your channel. I would personally, I've only used um, a sales channel once in my old training business, and um, I made sure that we went in and trained 
the salespeople. Um, I made sure that we discussed with their management the, uh, the remuneration uh, for it. And we invited them to the offices on a fairly regular um, basis for product updates and whatever, because we didn't want to hire them, but we wanted them to feel um, part of us. And at the time, they said nobody else did that. You know, it became quite transactional. So again, think a little differently about it. And you can, you can follow the same model through. And if you want to grab a coffee sometime, I'll, we can talk about it in more detail. Don't forget, you can get regular updates from Business of Software via the newsletter. Sign up for free at businessofsoftware.org updates. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.